Exodus 16, verses 4 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. People of Israel in Exodus 16 find themselves in the wilderness. They're having trouble finding water. We dealt with that last week, and then the next time we're in Exodus, next week we'll see them dealing with that again. This week, Exodus 16, the entirety of the chapter of Exodus 16, they have discovered they've wandered out in the middle of the wilderness been several days, maybe a week, and they have not yet found a McDonald's. They're running out of food, getting desperate. They're very, very concerned that they may starve to death. The message today is very simply this, so if you are sleepy from not getting enough sleep last night, you can jot this down, take a little nappy poo. There's no judgment here. I mean, I won't judge you. I can't talk about the people next to you. God gives what is needed. God gives what is needed. Exodus 16, we're going to see exactly how and why and when God gives what is needed. First thing, verses 1 through 12, God gives what is needed. Specifically, God gives difficulty that is needed. God gives difficulty that is needed. Uh, Let me, I'm going to just read the first 12 verses of Exodus 16. Pat read the The next section we're going to look at, but if you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and just read it. Uh, And so follow along with me in your Bible if you have a copy of the scripture. If not, just listen to me read it. Uh, They, that is the people of Israel, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Go up to verse 5 if you're following along. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you would grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling 
is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord. He has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. What were the people doing? The word in there about 25 times, it seems like. Grumbling. This is a side note. It's not in my script. This is always dangerous. I love the fact that they were grumbling. Why? Because God heard their prayer. Anybody here ever prayed a prayer of grumbling? And then you're like, oh, God's never going to pay attention to that because I have such a bad attitude. This passage says, yeah, no, he heard you. You're, you're good. He even hears us when we have a terrible attitude. He's just that nice. All right, back on script. God gives us what is needed. He gives us difficulty that is needed. Marathon runners have to run before a marathon. This is what I'm told. The idea is you run to get in shape, but then if you want to run a marathon, what you're going to do, at least one of your regular runs a day, a week, you're going to want to routinely increase the length of at least one, if not two of your runs that you do each week. That eventually, as you near the time of the marathon, that you might be running on a weekly basis, at least once a week, 18 miles in a run. That seems like a long way to run. And so what marathon runners do on purpose is do something hard. On purpose, they increase the difficulty of their workout. Why? So they can actually finish the marathon on the day of the race. They have to prepare through intentional difficulty that they might be trained for what they know is on the calendar. And some of you are saying, why would you put that on your calendar? That's not the point. You're missing the point. Training leads to strengthening, which leads to preparation for what's coming ahead. And God is giving the people of Israel what they need. They need difficulty because there are things in their future they need to be ready for. And the way they are in this moment, they're not ready yet. And so he gives them exactly what they need, which is difficulty. So what happens is they're in the wilderness and they have no food and they're worried that they're going to starve to death. So they grumble to the Lord because their faith is so weak and so tenuous. Now this is a, se a severe situation. If you and I had gone camping and we got lost and it was three or four days in and we hadn't eaten anything, especially if you had your children with you, you would begin to get very worried, wouldn't you? And that's where these folks uh, were. Even though previously in the, in the a book of Exodus, just last week we talked about, they ran out of water, and what did God do? He provided them clean water even where there wasn't any. And so God is, what he's doing is taking them through a cycle over and over again. Take away what they need, give them difficulty, and then provide them the opportunity to trust him and to see him work. Look at verse 4 of Exodus 16, if you will. The Lord said to Moses, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people will go out and gather a day's portion that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So he's going to test them to see if they will be obedient. But there's a trouble with that English word test. You and I, we hear the word test, and generally what that means is it's an evaluation. And a test is we evaluate if you meet the criteria, if you're qualified, if you meet the minimum standard. 
But what we must understand that under this meaning too is not just merely test, but also training. So he's going to put them in a testing situation to strengthen their muscles of faith. So he is sort of saying, I want to see what's, what your response is going to be when you're in difficulty. But in addition, he says, I want you to be in difficulty so that it's, I want you to work out your faith. Push it a little bit to see where your faith might grow. So he's actually training them. He's teaching them to trust him. And here's the training cycle. Problem, provision. How do the Israelite people grow in their faith? God provides them with a problem. Their faith is pushed, and then he provides for them, and they see how he provides. So in the problem, they get worked up. I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm frightened. I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm grumbly. God then provides for them, and now they've moved a little bit along in seeing their faith grow because they went through the cycle of having a problem, and God provides, and their faith is growing. So God is giving them what they need here, which is difficulty. But one of the problems, of course, is having a terrible attitude. Verse 3 of Exodus 16. The people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron, Oh, that we were still back in Egypt. That was so awesome. We had meat pots, which sounds delicious. We had bread to the full, which we all know. You go to Texas Roadhouse, they bring out that bread with the honey butter, which actually was created by Satan himself <laughs> to kill us. It's so amazing. And there you're eating it, and then they bring out your chicken fried steak. Like, I'm not even hungry for that. Box that up. Taking that home. I filled up on bread. And he said, we're going to fill up on bread. Or we filled up on bread in Egypt. Egypt was so awesome. Testing makes the bad days we used to have seem like the good old days. Trial today always makes us want to go back to the good old days, and if you really sat and thought about it, when you were in the good old days, you were grumbling about them too. It's just now you don't want to deal with what you don't like today, so remember back when, and that's exactly what Egypt, people of Israel are doing. Remember back when we had two square meals a day and good, always, always had a job. Well, that was called slavery. Yeah, but you know, you knew in the morning you had a place to go. And there was something to it. And you, but you were beaten. I know, but the calluses after a while, it didn't hurt like it did at the beginning. The bad days always, they come out as the good old days. Well, here's the thing. The challenge the people of Israel are facing here is in God's training... It's perfectly appropriate to say starving to death is horrible. Is starving to death horrible? Yes. God is not saying starving to death is awesome. However, God is always good. The challenge the people of Israel are facing is they have decided their trainer is a jerk. You go to the gym, you hire a trainer, he says to lift the weights, and you say, you're mean. Uh, you're paying me to teach you to lift heavy things. And this is what happened. He's putting them in situations for their faith to be strengthened. And they're saying God is not good. And God not being good is a lie from the devil. It's the original lie. Did God really say? Remember him saying that to Adam and Eve? A good God would not make your life like this. 
two things. God would make your life like this. It doesn't mean he's not good. It just means he is going to provide you with the difficulties that you need. 2 Kings chapter 7, you can turn there if you want. One of the verses from this section will be up on the screen. What is happening in 2 Kings chapter 7, in the city of Samaria, they are surrounded by enemies, and they have not had any food for a very, 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 very long time. They are under siege. The food is so scarce, it costs a lot of money. If you were able to go to a restaurant, and they have no food, and you'd say, I'd like a plate of food, and they'd say, well, i tell you what we have. We have a plate of ribs that somebody has already eaten, but they've left some halfway decent gristle on the ends. And there's some stale peels of the bread. They say, I'll pay $1,000 for that right now. That means you're hungry, right? Look what the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 7. Elisha said this to the people. Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain of those on hand at the king leaned to the man of God. He said, if the Lord himself should make the windows of heaven, could this thing happen? And Elisha said to him, you're going to see it, but you will not eat of it. So what Elisha says is this. You would pay a thousand bucks for a pile of bone scraps and some, some moldy heels of bread. Tomorrow you're going to be able to buy a prime rib dinner for $1.50. And the guy goes, uh, right now, I would willingly pay $1,000 for a pile of bones. And you think tomorrow, I'm going to be able to buy a prime rib dinner for buck fifty, Even if God opened the gates of heaven, that couldn't happen. It's not physically possible for that to happen. And so Elisha tells this guy, guess what? You're going to see it, and you won't eat of it. So here's what happens. The middle of the night, God sends a terror upon the army that surrounded that city. In the middle of the night, they all kill each other and flee. In the morning, four lepers go to their camp, and they discover it's empty. And four lepers, they begin gathering treasure and eating all they want, and they decide, you know what? We should probably tell that city. They tell the city what has happened. Everybody leaves the city to go into the camp, and they are all eating and stuffing themselves to the full. The guy who doubted, just so you know, the gate fell down and he got trampled by the people, but he, he saw what happened. So he had a bad day. God can do anything. And we say, well, he would never show up that way in my life. I don't know if he will or won't. But we must not do it, say God is evil because he's put me in a bad position. We have to always say, God will put me in precisely the place he wants me to be so he can work in precisely the way he wants to that I may learn to trust him more. We undercut our growth in faith when we say, why am I in this position? I wish I was in the position God had me in five years ago. And God is saying, I have you exactly where I need you so that your faith in the problem provision cycle is going to be built up. So he's standing at the bench press saying, come on, let's go, let's get it going. Trust me, I am going to come through for you. God gives us what we need. You don't want to hear this, but here's the deal. You need the difficulty God brings. You need it. The difficulty God is bringing into your life, and we're not making light of it. We're not saying, oh, it's easy difficulty. Difficulty, by definition, is, well, difficult. 
but we need it. Difficulty in our life and our walk with the Lord, in fact, is not optional. It is guaranteed. When Jesus said to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. He provides difficulty to us as a matter of, as a function of, his goodness. Could you imagine, look at the difficulty in your life and say, oh man, God, you are so good. I mean, right now, some of us are going, I will never pray that prayer. Try again, Greg. But when we look at what he's doing with our faith, we can say to God, God, thank you for the difficulty you put in my life. I would never trust you the way I do today if I hadn't just gone through what you just took me through. Think, take inventory of your Christian life and you think of the ways God has grown your faith. Were they not mostly connected with the challenges you have faced? And would you rather have a life of ease and less faith or would you rather have God take you through faith training which must be difficulty? God gives us what is needed. God gives us difficulty that is needed. All right, let's keep moving on. You're welcome. If difficulty re uh, reveals God's purpose, then the nature of his provision reveals his kindness. Look back at Exodus 16, and we're looking at verses 13 through 21. Again, I'm just going to read it for you. Um, not too many verses. Stay with me. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning, dew lay around the camp. Now, later on in the scriptures, specifically in the book of Numbers, it's going to provide us a lot more details about the quail thing. So we're just going to leave it at, it just mentions the quail. The quail is a one-time deal, one night only. Here's a little food to tide you over till you get manna in the morning. Okay, but we're not going to get into detail on the quail. You can uh, Google that and find that story in the book of Numbers. So in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, a fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. Thank you, Captain Obvious. All right. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. When they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, no one leave any of it till morning, but as you might imagine, they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stinketh. <coughs> it stank. And, uh, Moses was very angry with them. Uh, must have been a day. <laughs> All right, morning by morning, they gathered it, each of them as much as they eat, and when the sun grew hot, it melted. So uh, what happened was in the morning, you'd get up, and there was dew on the ground, dew would lift, and there's the, the bread uh, to collect. Now, I don't know if you, some of you remember this old game show. It was called Let's Make a Deal. Uh, and it's kind of dating myself. Some of you are too young to remember Let's Make a Deal. What would happen is you would answer some questions and whatever. And if you went far enough, you got to a point in the show, the host of the show would offer you money. Like, I'll give you $1,000 cash, or you can not take the $1,000 cash, and you can get whatever's behind door number two. You remember this show? Everybody, oh, what's he going to do? I'll take the 1000 bucks, and I'll take, behind, I'll take what's behind door number two. Of course, then it's really fun, because sometimes there was a donkey. 
uh, which means you didn't want anything. I always, as a young person, I thought they wanted donkeys. Uh, and then I discovered that was just the way they said you didn't get anything. Uh, but sometimes it would open up and it would be a new car, it would be a motorhome, it would be whatever, a new cheese grater. So that was the thing, open up door number two, and everybody's going, what is it? Or another way we might say, the good door, manna, because that's what manna means. Manna, they went out and says, what is it? And, and what is it is what manna means. So the name stuck. For the rest of time, for the next 40 years, they went out and gathered their what is it. Hey, did you get enough what is it this, this morning? Yeah, I got six omers, we're fine. Everybody ready for what is it? It's ready. So they would gather this uh, manna up. So here's how it is. You got uh, essentially, hardly exactly to tell, but um, an omer per person. You know, an omer. So what it is, if you were a single guy, had your own tent, little bachelor pad out in the wilderness, you got to go out and gather an omer. You got one omer because you were one guy in a tent. And then next door to you is a family which has got 17 kids and two parents and two grandparents and an aunt and an uncle. And they go out in the morning, and they're gathering omer on omer on omer. They got 37 omers in their tent. And the single guy's going, that's not fair. But the way it works is each person has a certain amount. Nobody had more than they needed, and nobody ran out before they were full. At the end of the day, you chuck what you didn't use. Because if you kept it overnight, it would rot, and it would have, uh, it would have uh, uh, worms in it. But here's the thing. If you sneak a peek down to verse 31, we get an even better description of this, what is it, manna. Now, verse 31, same chapter, 16. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So this is, this is what one commentator said about this description. He's saying this. God gave them the absolutely best tasting thing most of these people had ever eaten. The sweeteners that were available during that time period, you would sweeten food generally with fruits or with honey. If you wanted to sweeten something, you might find a fruit, you would juice it, and then you would either use the juice as a sweetener or you would boil it down a little bit to concentrate it into a syrup. And you would use that as a sweetener or you would use honey as a sweetener, but nobody yet in this time period had created beehives that were used. If you found honey in the woods, that, then you got honey. There wasn't honey hives that people were cultivating. And so honey was an extraordinarily rare delicacy. I love going to Costco and buy the three honey bear pack. Have you seen that thing? It's like, look at all this honey I got. I've got honey for days up in here. And, and they, were, they would never find honey. And what they were, on a daily basis, God was not merely giving them something to keep them from starving to death. He gave them something that was delicious. Now, with anything, you eat it long enough, you're going to get bored with it, as they would. This manna will continue on a daily basis until they cross the Jordan River 40 years later. Every single day, a daily miracle that God will provide for them, but every single night, they go to bed with absolutely no food. Every morning, they wake up, and they wonder, is there going to be manna on the floor again today? Every night they go to bed, the pantry is completely empty. Everyone had enough for today, but God was showing them 
through the nature of his providence that they could depend on him every single day for the rest of their life with him. God doesn't merely just give what is needed. God also gives them what is needed, and it is good. What if they woke up that morning and the, the floor of the wilderness was covered with asparagus? And some of you say, well, that sounds fantastic. Brussels sprouts everywhere, gather it up. They wouldn't need, no, gather a whole omer. No, you've got a half omer there. You're going to eat your Brussels No, he gave them something that was delicious, and it was good. Now, some of us, though, are a little bit concerned. I know in our modern culture of concern over germs, we say you're picking your food up off the desert floor. So we imagine, I asked the staff this, what about the germaphobes in wilderness? Seth had the great answer. He's, no, it's easy. You throw a sheet out inside your tent at night. You clean the sheet, you put it out, and that way it won't touch the dirt. Fantastic. Brilliant, Seth. Although, what if a lizard walked over it? And then it's just, it's just gross. There's all kind of gross there. Got to trust the Lord. Look with me at Luke chapter 12, verse 19. The parable of Jesus tells a guy was very wealthy and he had fields and one year his fields blew the doors off productivity wise. Absolutely didn't know what to do. In fact, he had nowhere to put all of his crops and he said, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to store all my grains and my goods. Fantastic idea. Brilliant idea. No problem with that idea. Build the biggest barns you want. The problem here is verse 19 and it's on the screen. You can read it there. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The problem was not that the fact that he had a tremendous profit. The problem was not a fact that he had tremendous assets. The problem wasn't the fact that he built larger barns. The problem was he looked out to his large barns who were full of grain, and he said to his soul, I don't need God anymore. I don't have to be like my Jewish ancestors and trust God for my manna tomorrow. I am so much better off than those yahoos. God said to him, you are a fool because tonight your soul, your soul that you thought you had cared for will be demanded of you. Who is going to eat the food of your full barn? And what God is teaching the people of Israel is something we need to understand in our own hearts. God is going to provide us, provide for us in a way that is a blessing, that is joyful. But we have to understand, no matter what God blesses with us, we go to bed every night depending on him in the morning for what we need for the next day. We fool ourselves if we go to bed and we think a pantry is full, everything's squared away. God wants us to be convinced that he is a good, providing God, and we can rest in him because he is going to give us what we need tomorrow. We must have God for our daily provision, regardless of what uh, we might have. This man with the large barns, what he tried to do was provide for himself rest with his stuff that can only be provided with God. The kind of rest that God wants to give us, and we'll get that into that in more detail in the next section, is rest that only God can provide and our stuff cannot provide it. It is a mistake that we make when we think on any given day that we don't need God to survive. 
I trust that during this time in church you've been breathing. Who do you think has been giving you those breaths? Did you think it was your diaphragm? Did you think it was the EPA and the Clean Air Act? Did you think it was your brilliance in knowing that you have to keep breathing and if you don't, you will die? How about your heart beating? Have you been paying attention to it? Now you are. Do we presume to think that our heartbeat and our breath is something we have managed to gain on our own? God makes it quite clear. Every breath, every heartbeat, every meal we eat, he has provided to us in this moment. And had he chosen to, we wouldn't have it. And we make a severe mistake when we decide we don't need God to survive again this morning. We also make a mistake if we think God has not blessed us in a million wonderful ways. Because that is his very nature. God blesses us with what is needed and it actually leads to us depending on him more and not on ourselves. So God gives us what he is, what is needed. He gives us bless, blessing, blessing that is needed. Excuse me. All right. So God gives us difficulty. God gives us blessing. Let's keep going. What could be better than blessing? It is rest. So look with me at verses 22 uh, through 30 of, Act, of Exodus 16. So this is a, an interesting thing that I personally think might be the most important part of this section. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, here's what the Lord says. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake it what you will bake, boil what you will boil. All that is left over, lay aside and keep it till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning. And what happens to it when you keep it overnight? It spoils, right? Not on Friday night. It didn't stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. He will not, you will not find it in the field. Six days you gather it. On the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will not be any on the floor of the wilderness. On the seventh day, wouldn't you know it, some people went out to gather, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long are these guys going to refuse to keep my commands and my laws? The Lord has given you rest, a Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain in your tent. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested. So it's a very simple process. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, all the way to Friday, you go out every day, gather an omer. On Friday, you gather twice as much. And on Saturday, God has given very clear instructions. What are you supposed to do on Saturday? Chill, bro. Hang out. Netflix a little or something. I don't know. Don't worry about it. You're covered. But see what they're thinking. Wait, I got twice as much left over. If I gather a little more, man, feast today. God's clear instructions were just rest. Look at, uh, well, not look at, listen, I'm going to read Psalm 95. Here is uh, Psalm 95, uh, verses 6 to the end of the psalm. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What, what does a shepherd do for sheep? In a pasture, he gives them food to eat. So the psalmist is saying, we're his sheep, and he pastures us. Verse 8, today, if you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. That's when they ran out of water. When your fathers put me to the test and you put me to the proof, though they had seen my works, 
For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray, excuse me, in their heart. They have not known my ways, therefore I swore an oath, they shall not enter my rest. What he is calling the people of Israel to do, what God is calling everybody who follows the Lord and trusts him to do, is to kneel down and simply be fed, to trust in the Lord, to rest in the Lord. He is saying to uh, pattern your life in this way, that God brings difficulty, he brings blessing, he brings provision, and our job is to simply rest in the Lord. On the Sabbath day, on that Saturday, the people of Israel, their job was to sit in their lazy boy and get up and snack on some manna. It's not a bad deal. They were to do no gathering. God was telling them, I rested on the seventh day of creation. I want you to also rest. Your rest is an act of worship. I think this is amazing. Some of us think the Bible is a book of rules, of do's. Do this, do that, do this. Here's the most important rule of the Bible. Don't do anything. Rest in the finished work of what God has done. He has given you your manna, you're squared away, sit down and enjoy it. As one person said, it's what God is doing with the people of Israel is over and over again having them do a trust fall. You know what a trust fall is? That's where you have some people standing behind you, you close your eyes and fall backwards and you trust that they're going to catch you. That either builds your trust or destroys it depending on the kinds of friends you have. And what God is doing is for 40 years through the wilderness, every single day, another trust fall. And what we and the people of Israel wanted to do is say, I don't want to do any trust more, any more trust falls. I want you to give me enough that I don't have to trust you anymore. And God is saying, I'm going to provide you enough. Not only that, I am going to command you on one day in particular to just trust me when nothing shows up. You will have enough if you will rest in me. You will have enough if you will trust me. God gave them this command, stay in your tent, enjoy your family, eat your manna, and on that day people got up, and what did God say? Remember that, Exodus 16? How long will these people fail to listen to me? God is literally telling them to take a day off, to rest in him, and because they have not yet trusted him, it's very, very difficult to do. Hebrews 4.10, it'll be up on the screen for you. Let's take a look at this passage. Hebrews 4.10. I'm going to, it's, Hebrews 4.10 is on the screen, but I'm going to start reading two verses earlier. If Joshua had given the people of Israel rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, that is you and I. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Faith in Christ it was, is what brings to us God's rest. When we trust Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished. And when we trust him, we can rest and say, it really is finished. He really did pay for my sin and make sure that by trusting in him, I have access to God himself and the glories of heaven when I die. I can rest in him. Faith and trust is what brings us into the rest of God. Trust in Christ and what he did 
on the cross. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians 1.18. I think that's going to be on the screen as well. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I'm going to read one more verse. It's not on the screen. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, through Christ Jesus. So faith for us today, resting in Christ today, is this. Seeing the inheritance we have in Christ with eyes of faith, with the same certainty we see the world around us today. Heaven is not a pipe dream. Life with God forever is not a fantasy that just helps us get through another day. The kingdom of God one day coming on this earth where we get to reign with Jesus forever ought to be our goal and our anticipation and we should see that with eyes of faith as clearly as we see the challenges we face today. We can be assured that in Christ we one day look forward to the final rest we have forever with him. To live in Christ is to live in rest. It's not what we're supposed to do. It's what Jesus has done. We'll get into it in more detail next week. But we discover that Jesus compared himself to manna over and over again, and he said, I am the real bread. When we partake of Christ, we are, have a certainty in faith of knowing that he has filled us with hope because he covered all of our sin. We have hope because he is raised from the dead. And we can rest in him. If you define the Christian life as how much can I do to make God happy, you've missed it. If you define the Christian life as, holy cow, look what Jesus did to make God happy, you have found rest. God gives rest that is needed. All right, let's look at the last section, verses 31 through 36. Keep moving along. Got to finish this before daylight savings time. Or the end of it anyway. All right, verse 31. I'm going to read these five verses. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and it tasted like those wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is the Lord. This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. People of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Oh, and by the way, an omer is a tenth part of the ephah. Oh, thank you. That really made that much more clear. I think an omer is probably a quarter too, something like that. So here's what they did. They gathered a jar of it so they'd remember what the manna was. And they put it by the testimony. So when you gathered manna and you kept it overnight, what happened to it? It stinketh. What about that manna that they put by the testimony? What happened to that? Forty years. And it was fresh as the day they gathered it. So over and over again in this, uh, this narrative account, God is trying to impress on us. He is in charge of the provision. And God is calling us to do one thing that I would recommend is sort of how we can settle in on what God has for us. Can we do the one thing that God is asking for us to do in Exodus 16? Can we rest and can we remember?
Can we rest that God has provided? Can we rest knowing God always will provide? And do we have the willingness to remember how God has provided over and over again? Now, there's something we do once a month to be sure that we do this. What do we do? We celebrate communion. And some of us think we celebrate communion because we're good Christians or we're religious people. We celebrate communion to remember what? Just how badly we needed to be saved by Jesus. Because some of us, after we get saved, God does a powerful work in us, and some of our bad habits start to fall away. We develop new ones, but we won't get into that. And pretty soon we go, well, you know, I'm getting pretty good. Wait, Jesus didn't have to die as much for me as he thought he'd have to. Then we take communion and we're reminded, oh, wait, that's right, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. Communion is intended to remind us we need Jesus as much today as we did the day we were saved, and we can rest as much today in Christ as the day that we were saved. God gives us what is needed. God gives us a reminder that we need his rest and his provision. Okay, just a couple of things, just a couple of things to drop in your head, ways of, maybe ways of applying this in your own life. I listed out here, actually the staff helped me with this too, enemies of rest, enemies of rest. I'm going to list them here, and I know for you folks who come out on the day we lose an hour, none of these apply to you. These are all the folks who probably are going to be arriving here in about two minutes. Enemies of rest, envy. Jealousy, envy. If I believe God is dealing with somebody else better than he is dealing with me, I am not at rest. He got 10 omers of manna. I only got one. God, that's not fair. I've now left rest. Envy. Discontentment. We're going to see this throughout the wilderness wanderings. We see this in our own lives. God has blessed us, but after a while, manna just starts to taste like manna. And you know, honey is good until all you have is honey. And after a while, it starts to taste kind of foul. Discontentment is an enemy of rest. Fear. Did God really say he would provide what I need? I'm not sure if he's going to come through. Fear is an enemy of rest. Pride is an enemy of rest. God is lucky I'm on his team. And boy, with me, he doesn't have to provide a lot because I took care of most of it. He's just got to make up the difference every now and then. Pride is an enemy of rest. James 4.1 says this. I'm just going to read it. What causes quarrels and fights among you? He's speaking to a church. Certainly there are some very religious things that they were fighting over. Here's what they were fighting over. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. We're moved by selfishness and envy and greed and discontentment. We leave rest and then we take it out on the people around us. You know what I would love to see? I would love to see a movie made about the life of Caleb in the wilderness. Do you remember Caleb? Caleb and Joshua were the two that went into the promised land, and they said, oh, we got this thing. Let's go get after it. And 10 of the other spies who went in the promised land said, we're dead. We look like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and the people rebelled against God. 40 years of wandering later, Caleb goes into the promised land, 
He's now 80 years old, and he says, hey, Joshua, by the way, God said I get any of the land I walked on. I want Horeb, where the giants live. Okay, yeah, knock yourself out, Caleb. And he goes and takes Horeb, 80 years old, knocking giants down. I would have loved to see Caleb. What was Caleb doing on Saturday when, when he had the manna stored up? Sitting around his lazy boy. Tasty. You know, he peeks out his tent. Oh, I've been wondering. Whatever. Was the wilderness hard for Caleb? Well, as hard as anybody else. But what did he care? For whatever reason, God has worked into his life. He's like, it's just the desert again. Bread's going to show up tomorrow. May as well enjoy the walk. And he gave us a day off to sit around and eat extra honey. Because some of us think there's no way you could enjoy the wilderness. Well, you can if God has every moment mapped out and you're okay with it. And I'd love to see what Caleb was doing with that. Uh, last verse we're going to turn to, I'm going to turn to anyway, Matthew chapter 14. This is what Jesus said. Jesus heard uh, what he did, and he withdrew to a, a desolate place, and the crowds came around him, and they followed him. He went ashore, and he saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them, healed some of them, and evening came, and the disciples came to him, and he said, boy, this place is really deserted. He was snickering. Boy, this place is really wildernessy. I don't know if you did that. I'm sorry. That's Send the crowds away, and the disciples say, send the crowds away that they buy food for themselves. And Jesus said, why don't you give them something? They're like, listen, we have only five loaves and two fish. See, Jesus is doing with his disciples what the Lord was doing with the people of Israel in the wilderness. He's going, you don't have to worry about it. And Jesus divided it up, and everybody went hungry, right? No, there were leftovers on leftovers. Here's the thing, because some of us are going, well, my Christian life could not possibly just be about rest. You have to do something. We don't do something. Here's the thing we do. We rest, and because God is so awesome that he gave us rest, we then do something, and we call it this, worship. Worship is merely saying, if God gave me rest, how can I say to him, man, you're awesome. Well, I might give some money to a guy who doesn't have so much. I might volunteer some time in an organization who needs me. I might give, my, give somebody else a little bit of patience and forgiveness because God has been so good to me and given me so much rest, I can worship by doing those things which are very similar to what God likes to do. So Jesus calls his disciples to worship him by feeding people in the wilderness the same way he fed people in the wilderness. He's not calling them to work. He's calling them to rest and worship him by acting the way he acts. So actually what we do comes out of rest where we then get to worship God. God gives us all we need. First thing, what does he give to us? You tried to forget it already. He gives us difficulty that we need. God also gives us blessing that we need. I know we have experienced great blessing in our lives. God gives us rest that we need and finally god gives us a reminder that we need over and over again him so here's the last question if you have god you have all you need so the only question you have to ask yourself is do you have god if you want to find rest 
that will be found in Christ alone. God gives us what we need.